Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome everybody. I'm Richard Miles and I'm the Pro Vice-Chancellor Triple E, which is basically education, enterprise and engagement. And I wanted to start, before I welcome our guests, by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation, on whose ancestral lands we're meeting tonight. So I'd like to introduce the topic, first of all, I think. And the topic, of course, is the future of work. Now, one of the things which Meredith said to me before we did this, and I think we were all primed in the same way, is do not terrify your audience with <laughs> dire predictions of what is going to happen to all of us in the next sort of uh, you know, 10 or 20 years. But of course, if you look at the sort of proliferation of discussions around this topic, whether it's on television and other parts of the media, in terms of talks being put on by universities and other organisations, there's a huge amount of interest in this at the moment. And that's obviously partly to do with the fact that the, inter- that the future has never seemed so near. You know, the future often seems like this place a long, long way away. But actually, you know, in terms of the future of the work and in terms of the sort of changing sort of landscape of employment, you know, we're talking about a couple of years, some areas of, of sort of quite drastic and, and, and sort of transformations. Now, so that's the sort of scary bit over with, okay? Um, and I think one of the things to say is this, is that first of all, is that universities like ours, and particularly our university, are thinking about all of the sort of social emphasis of that, whether it's in terms of you know, the chance, the dangers of growing inequality, or whether it's um, to do with these other sort of transformations of the economy, et cetera, et cetera. But tonight, the emphasis is just slightly different. One of the things we really want to do is what we really want to focus on tonight is in terms of what higher education can do to, in some respects, to sort of meet the challenges of this sort of changing work landscape. Um, and I think, I think that all, any university that wants to thrive and survive in this sort of environment needs to be thinking about this. The Sydney University, um, I think it's true to say that we, at the moment, are absolutely in the foreground of thinking around this. We're transforming at the moment our educational offerings. There's a huge amount of emphasis also in terms of what the research we're doing as well. And much of it comes back to the idea of how we prepare our students for what lies ahead. And that's incredibly important. And I think one of the things I'd say before I pass over is this, is that actually it's big, broad universities who actually help you to learn to think that are going to thrive in this particular in this particular sort of environment and I think Sydney University you know, is really up for meeting that challenge so let me introduce all of our speakers so first of all on my left and I'll pass through here we have Martin Tomich who is the chair of design at the University of Sydney's School of Architecture design and planning and also director of the design lab we have also we have Sandra Peter from the University of Sydney uh, Business School then next we have Nikki Ringland, who's the Computing Education Specialist at the Australian Computing Academy 
in the Faculty of Education and, and Information IT. And then to give it some balance, to show that we're not just sort of, you know, all Sydney insiders, um, we have Alex McCauley um, from Startup um, Oz. And you're the CEO of Startup Oz. Um, in terms of the format, what we're going to do is we're going to start with me asking each of our panel some particular question. And then after that, we're going to have um, a sort of a, a panel discussion. Okay? And I think within the panel discussion, I thought what we would do is we'd immediately turn it over to the audience. So we're going to start with Nick. First of all, could you, could you actually explain what, in terms of the big project that you're involved in at the moment, and, and then I think I'm going to, without sort of overloading you with questions, um, perhaps you could say something about the extent to which, you know, we're continually hearing the artificial intelligence that, you know, robots are going to take over and, you know, and, and do everything that we're doing. So to what extent is artificial intelligence, and more importantly also algorithms, going to transform the sort of jobs that we're going to be doing? Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh I work for the Australian Computing Academy uh, as part of the Faculty of Engineering and IT at the University of Sydney. Um, and our big mission is to help teachers, uh, school teachers, support the implementation of the digital technologies curriculum. So the university isn't the only one who is overhauling their uh, curriculum. In fact, Australia, every state in Australia has endorsed the new digital technologies curriculum, which will require every student to learn about technology, to learn computer science, uh, and real computational thinking from grade three to grade eight uh, with opportunities to further um, take electives and further study afterwards. And this is really exciting because uh, it means that every student is going to be uh, not only offered but actually forced to engage with what I think is, is possibly the most important uh, skill to equip students going into the future of work. So it's a nice segue there. Um, so, so it's a it's a daunting task. We've got um, uh, teachers across Australia with a new curriculum that they're not necessarily familiar with. We've got students with a, a new subject area that they're not familiar with. They might be familiar, but not uh, quite engaged with uh, creating rather than consuming technology. And and that distinction is something that we see within university students and and society in general. So, in terms of this, this skill set, um, whether it's important in day-to-day uh, -day life, um, I personally think so. But in terms of the, the future of work, it's uh, outrageously important. So the second part of that question was, um, will AI take over? Uh, yeah. Not yet. Um, but it will radically transform pretty much every aspect uh, of life in general. So, so in terms of um, equipping students with the skills they need, they need a broad set of skills, but they also need uh, the right set of skills. Could you, so, so the historian in me is sort of screaming out for an example okay, <laughs> of how it's going to... Okay, so, so I'll, I'll give you an example that's uh, relatively close to my heart. Um, I studied languages and linguistics um, because languages are awesome. Uh, but in order to actually get a job equipped with my uh, linguistics degree, I, I wanted to solve important problems, but in order to solve those problems, I, I needed to combine it with technology. So, so focusing on that um, combining of uh, subjects, um, in sometimes referred to as CS plus X, 
uh, allows you to take on bigger challenges um, and solve more important problems. Uh, if we're talking about students nowadays and dream jobs, uh, marine biology seems to be the one that's always uh, picked up. Um, if students want to become marine biologists, chances are they're not going to be um, scouting around on boats drawing uh, sketches of dolphins. Uh, it's transformed somewhat. They're going to be analysing data, um, tracking conditions, tracking the animals themselves, using uh, AI in terms of... Let's, let's talk about narrow AI. I think we're going to talk about AI a fair bit later in the panel discussion, but, but when I talk about AI here, I mean narrow AI. So um, teaching a computer to do a specific task and to do that specific task well. Um, not so much Terminator as uh, maybe a, a spreadsheet just being kind of intelligent and, and doing the thing for you, or um, not having to write down all of your notes while you're in the boat um, talking about things to do with marine biology, but, but using uh, voice recognition to, to do that for you. That's algorithms, that's AI, and that's already transforming every industry. So would you say that the sort of that broad education you had to start with, was that, that foundational education? Do you think that was an important sort of building block for you? I mean, I'm a little bit biased, but, but certainly. Be, be biased, <laughs> that's great. So, so I, I wish that I had had more computer science or more uh, exposure to computing, to technology, um, and to the concept that I could combine technology with my other interests while at school. And I wish I'd had more of that uh, as an undergrad as well. So I'm, I'm actually really excited about the, the changes to the degree programs. Um, the OLE units, so, so students can now, as part of degree programs that are completely separate, do subjects in other faculties. And that's really exciting. Fantastic. Thank you. So, so Martin, okay, I'm, I'm going to, because obviously design thinking is absolutely the flavor of the month. Every, you know, I could see design thinking labs sort of springing up everywhere. You hear about people who got into pioneers, who got into design thinking early, sort of having their, having their, their labs and their practices being bought by some of the big four and others, big consultancies for huge sums of money, etc. But could you explain to us actually what design thinking really is? Uh, sure. Um, I should probably start by explaining where, um, what the group is, uh, yeah. that I'm a member of or the director of now at the University of Sydney, so that's the Design Lab. Um, and uh, before it was called, uh, before we changed the name to Design Lab, which happened around 2006, it was called the Key Center of Design, Computing and Cognition. And that was actually founded by uh, Professor John Chero in the 70s already. Um, and it's uh, people are often surprised that we are sitting in the same school with architecture and planning, and there's a good explanation for that. Mm. And that's that uh, Professor John Chirer founded that lab um, thinking that um, he would use the architects in that building to study how they design. And so the programs that we now teach in this school um, that focus on design and design thinking um, were born out of this idea that um, that that technology would change the way people design. So John Chair and his group was trying to understand how do architects currently design and then looking at new technologies mm. to see how they, how they can design these technologies to help architects design better or more productive, more efficiently, more effectively. Um, but what they very, very quickly learned was that it was actually the other way around. So that um, what they noticed was that it was actually design that was changing the way we use technology. 
And so that's the field that is now referred to as uh, user experience design in industry. Um, and that's a field that is concerned with the design, designing the interactions between people and products, services and systems. Um, anything that's digital or even non-digital. And so design thinking was originally, in an original sense of how design thinking as an academic field was born at that time, was studying how architects and other designers design and learning, um, and, and learning everything, they, everything there is to learn about these design processes and methods and tools and then trying to come up with toolkits um, or collections of methods that can be applied in other contexts. And that's what design thinking is now. So design thinking is now seen as a toolbox, a collection of methods, um, and also as a way of thinking that equips people with um, the ability to deal with uncertainty and um, also to provide methods and uh, an approach to thinking to uh, solve complex problems. Um, so in a way, it's, um, it's very much built up on the idea of um, being able to both think um, convergently and divergently. So coming up with ideas and then also finding solutions. So, so, so in some respects, it's, well, in every respect, it's about embracing rather than being scared of complexity. And Be because that's where the ideas lie, in that, in that uncertainty. Yeah. And, and in the complexity, that's also where the ideas lie for innovation. And design is also, so the British, uh, the, um, the UK um, Council of Design um, did quite a big design study and, and a study of design and business. Um, and so they, they're, they're describing design as the discipline that bridges creativity and innovation. Mm -hmm. Because creativity is all about coming up with great ideas and innovation is about focusing those ideas into something that is actually provides an advantage, whether that's a business advantage or mm -hmm. a social benefit. Um, and design is the discipline that bridges those two. Okay, so, so that, that sounds like a, a fantastic idea, the sort of the merging of creativity, technology. But, but so the Luddite in me, though, says how much, how technical do you need to be? How far, to, you know, to what extent do you need to actually have that sort of training mm. to actually sort of, to sort of, you know, to have an in to this sort of new world? Uh, it's a very good question. And uh, the, uh, I'll, I'll say two things about that. So one is that the level of technical literacy really depends on the uh, profession that you want to go into. Um, and certainly in uh, the profession that our students go into, user experience design, it's really, really important mm -hmm. to be completely across the technical aspects. So our, all of our students in our undergraduate and postgraduate programs in design in our school have to learn coding. And it's, that's very much um, the same like uh, Almost 100 years ago now, the Bauhaus School of Design in Germany, which is sort of held up as the, as the great school of design at the time, which very much focused on graphic design, which was design, what, what was design at the time. Um, the students there had to learn also about the technology to produce designs and artworks. So for example, they had to work with printing presses and understanding how printing presses work. And now that our students graduating as designers have to design digital experiences, they, of course, have to learn about the underlying technology, which is the code. Um, and the other aspect to that is that, um, as Nikki was saying, our lives are becoming more and more um, technologized, or we're, we're having technology, we're facing technology in all aspects of our lives, so using technology all the time, all of the, all of the devices we have um, that surround us um, are all built on technology. And so that way also, that also means technology is more and more used in jobs, and so that having some technical understanding or technical literacy allows us to 
use those technologies better and more, more productively in a way. Um, it's really a little bit, um, and one of our students said that um, recently, it's a little bit like the matrix. So if you understand the code, if you understand the code that, that lies behind the systems, you suddenly see the world in a very different way. And you're also able to change the way people experience that world, which is pretty cool. Our students are. If somebody really doesn't stopped. know about coding, that sounds quite scary. But, <laughs> <laughs> but okay, that's Hopefully, change the world for better. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. The there's a second aspect. Can Good. I get to my Thank second you. point? Of course, we can. Um, <laughs> the second point, and why it's really important to, to start teaching coding um, early on, is that just like maths, it trains us in analytical thinking, and that's just something really important about coding. But like with maths, we have to make sure that it's actually used and taught in a context so that it makes sense and it's meaningful and it, just, it doesn't become another math thing, thing that people don't want to do because it sounds um, useless in a way if it's not in a context. So it's really important to think about it, um, about teaching that in a context, within a context, and in a way that it actually solves problems, right? So that's a context, solving problems through code. Great, thank you very much. Well, Sandra, I wanted to ask you about the Sydney Business, Business Insights Strategic Initiative um, to start with, and just ask you about how does that distinguish Sydney University Business School? I think uh, this is one of the biggest changes that we've had in, in quite a while, and my boss, who's sitting at the back of the room, um, has, uh, has really started this initiative that I'm currently running called Sydney Business Insights, and this was really an attempt to rethink a little bit what the role of a business school is in today's society, and we are a fantastic school. We teach um, over 12,000 students, 13,000 students next year. We do amazing research across a whole range of um, um, business issues, but also we have a role to, to be an influential voice on major issues and trends in society, and that is what Sydney Business Insights is trying to do. I think we are faced with a variety of challenges, and at the business school we recognize these as, as megatrends, these large transformative forces and technology, AI, big data, everything that comes with it is one of them, but we've also got things like urbanization, the fact that we've got 1.5 million people moving to cities every week, and most of the GDP in the world is created in cities. Things like resource security, um, tremendous challenges uh, around that, things like uh, changes in demographics that also will influence the future of work. All of these megatrends come together to influence the way we live, we work, and we do business. And at the business school, we think we are educating students, but we also have a relationship with the rest of the public, uh, with business stakeholders, with government, to talk about these issues. So that's what we do with Sydney Business Insights. We showcase a lot of the um, great research that we do in our school, and um, whether that is um, around the future of work or broadly around the future of business, so all of Sydney Business Insights is focused on the future of business. Uh, we also showcase work that um, some of our alumni do, that some of our partners do, or we might talk to, let's say, um, the Commodore of the Australian Navy about how the Navy does innovation. How do you do innovation in an organization that is very hierarchical, very rule-based, very risk-averse? So we try to reach out in industry. We talk to the uh, CEO of Nissan, for instance, about how they think about autonomous vehicles. And we bring those not only to our students, so a lot of these resources are embedded back into our curriculum. Um, for instance, uh, we had a discussion recently around what is business for? One of the fundamental questions that we have um, in our business school, what are businesses for in 
today's society. We reached out to our researchers, we had this conversation, and it was present in our courses the very next day. All of these resources are available for free online for anyone who wants to use them, and they're used within our business school, they're used at other universities that we know of, and the general public reads them, listens to them, we have a series of podcast videos. Um, and that's basically what I do. So I have the exciting job of um, talking to uh, cutting-edge researchers and interesting people about the most exciting things and the most scary things that are <laughs> <laughs> uh, happening in today's society. So. Fantastic. So, so look, I mean, the, the one I've got two questions, really, and they both sort of build on what we've heard already. One is around, on a sort of national level, what sort of skills are students going to need or what are young people going to need to really thrive in the new environment which is coming? That's on our national level. What's the second one? The second one is on a, if you wanted to work inter internationally, um, is that just the same thing apply? Well, I think I could, I could hold the stage all night and I've got a captive audience for at least another hour, so I could go on. Um, but I think I want to focus on, on two sort of overarching skills that I think apply both nationally and, and internationally. And for the first one, again, I'm from the business school, so I'll start with our business school. And um, so our strategy going into 2020 was called business not as usual, right? And there are these large megatrends that we spoke about that will really make business not as usual. But what comes with that is a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty in business, in life, in society in general. So I think the, the, the overarching skills that we need to give our students is how to deal with that ambiguity. And now under that overarching skills, and when I talk ambiguity in business, I mean around pretty much everything. Um, you open up a newspaper and our business schools open up a newspaper and on the left hand side they'll have Elon Musk saying the AI apocalypse is coming and robots are going to kill us all. And on the right hand side there's another article that says that um, Bunnings and um, uh, Woolworths have pulled their ads from YouTube because the algorithm cannot not match them to racist videos. So maybe the AI apocalypse is not quite there, but maybe it's coming. So there's that kind of ambiguity. There's also ambiguity around what are the major players, let's say, in, in business. We had in April Tencent, a Chinese company that, that created WeChat, one of the giants, one of the big three in China, that is now one of the top 10 companies by market cap in the world, and that top 10 has changed so dramatically over the last 20 years. We've got um, companies like Facebook in there, we've got um, Apple, but we've got Chinese companies like Tencent that have displaced Wells Fargo. So that kind of environment is changing. Um, and we're not really good at predicting this. Um, there's a, um, a famous, uh, um, not anecdote, this is actually real, and there's a book written about it, of um, two American economists who I will not shame publicly, who um, in, 2000 <laughs> in 2005 says, said, there is no way we shall ever have a car that is going to be able to make a right-hand turn in traffic because there are too many factors and we just do not have the technology and we won't we won't have this happen. And they wrote it down and they said it publicly in a lot of forums. And um, unfortunately, five years later, Google made it happen. And not only did they make it happen, it now has the potential to revolutionize how we think about so many industries. So that's the dealing with ambiguity. And we do that in the business school and across the university from the small scale. So for instance, we get students to ask a really good question and tell us why it's a really good question to ask. So when they look at something like, um, let's say, um, Alexa, right, the little speaker that you have in your Google Home or the Google Pod, um, and they ask it um, a question, 
because we now have a voice interface, how will that change, for instance, how we think about marketing? We spent all this money on doing, you know, eye-level packaging. How will this change how we think about marketing? What if I don't order Duracell batteries, I just order batteries? What goes on behind that? So we, we get them to ask really good questions and tell us why they're good questions. But we also teach them the next step, which is problem solving. And we do that not only in the business school, but throughout the university. We have a whole new curriculum focused around teaching our students to be problem solvers. And we expose them to real life problems. And we do that um, within the business school. We'll have 13,000 students who will be exposed to real life work integrated learning opportunities. Um, so yeah, I think this uh, dealing with ambiguity is, is one of the big skills. And if we're talking, and also everything that comes with it, right, creativity, agility, resilience, all these things, critical thinking, um, learning how to learn, imagination is a big thing that will come also within that dealing with ambiguity. How do we imagine futures that have never happened before? Um, we had a group of students working with um, the iconic, the online retailer, right? And um, there's their general manager, also one of our, of our alumni, set up a very <coughs> successful company and said, who will my competitors be in five years? And our students came up with, um, and they weren't looking at you know, business plans and all these things. They said, well, maybe I'll be able to click on Instagram and buy my clothes. And lo and behold, this was a year ago. In, again, in March this year, Google enabled the feature where you can click on the pictures and buy the clothes. So I think those are fantastic skills. But if you look more broadly, so dealing with ambiguity would be one. But if you look more broadly, and I think that's what our university is about, is really leadership. I think that will be the fundamental challenge for what is what is coming. And leadership for good is what we do at the University of Sydney, right? We have fantastic alumni. We have, uh, you know, people who invented Wi-Fi and SBS uh, and who have, who have done so many wonderful things. But what is coming, I think, is actually very scary. So changes because of automation, because of AI, um, threats around inequality, around who gets a share of the pie, around how we transform our society. I think those are all tasks around um, leadership, and I think we're fantastically well-placed to do that. Thank you. I mean, I should actually say it's not just in the business school, but right across the university, all liberal studies students. And so that's in, in the science, faculties of science and also in arts and social sciences and, and, and in business. Everybody will be doing some sort of interdisciplinary project unit and will be having... So Sydney University is going into experiential learning in an in a even bigger way than we were in it already. And that's all about, in the end, recognizing that sense to which students also need to be practicing as well as just being in the classroom. But I want to come back to something you said, okay, just very quickly. So, I mean, one of the things, one of the dangers of talking about the future is we sometimes start to minimize and forget what now is and what happened in the past. I mean, do you, do you really think the world's going to be any, I mean, it's complex and ambiguous now, isn't it? Are we... I do, so yes, I do think the world is complex and ambiguous, and I know the um, arguments that we know, we've had a, an industrial revolution before, and this has happened before, and it's just happening again. I think the scale, the pace, and the speed at which is ha it's happening, I think that is unprecedented, and I think we're not well equipped to understand the ramifications of, of, um, of what's going on. We also are, for the first time in history, I'd, I'd like to tell uh, my students, I'll try to reach for my iPhone, the most of the technology that went into making this was public money, 
most of the technology that went into the touch screen, um, Wi-Fi, all of these things were developed because governments and society put money behind it and we share those publicly. Now, for something like artificial intelligence, we have um, companies, and this is just US, um, three of the frightful five, you know, the Googles and the Facebook and Microsoft, Amazon, um, three of them put about 38 billion dollars behind AI research. The US government put one billion. The next revolution is a private revolution. Um, WeChat, right? In China, um, if you go to, and um, many of here have been to China, WeChat is everything. You pay with it, you order dog grooming on it, you um, go to the restaurant, you check your school records, you pay your fines on it, you talk to your friends. So it's so much more than a chat app. That is a private company. Currently, we have email. No one can turn off email, right? We, if you turn off my email at the University of Sydney, I hope you won't um, after this talk. But <laughs> if someone turns it off, I just get another email address. No one controls that. But I can turn off WeChat. I can decide who is there and who, who is not on it um, or what kind of data I see around it. So the next revolution is not as easy as the, the ones before. Also, let's not forget, something like the Industrial Revolution took um, 150 years to get to where it's gotten to. And yes, jobs in agriculture, we used to have 80-90% of people working in agriculture, and we're down to 2% of people working now in agriculture. But it took 100 years to get them out of agriculture, and they weren't the best years we've had. You know, the 20s were not that great, <laughs> neither were the 30s, and um, we had a couple of wars in between. Um, so this time around, it's happening at a much, much faster rate. Mm. I don't know if we're well equipped at this time to think about the uh, potential for inequality, that the fact that we're um, displacing white collar work and so on and so forth. And fundamentally how industries are changing. So we're thinking about something like law. And within the law profession, yes, we've got algorithms that are fantastic. You don't have to troll to two million documents to find out um, uh, what's there. And you have, you have um, 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 algorithms and software helping you out. But how is that transforming the structure of the law industry? Because law graduates used to go in and be able to learn while being on the cases and doing those repetitive tasks and getting socialized in that profession. So that doesn't mean that they won't have a job. It just means that their um, pathway through the profession will be quite different. And we need to think carefully about how we design these mm. things for the future. Thank you. Thank you for that. So Alex, so, <laughs> so perhaps you can just start by telling us a bit about Startup Oz. Uh, and then I've got another question for you. Sure. Um, so Startup Oz is Australia's national startup advocacy group. Um, what, we, what that means is that we work with startups around the country, I guess companies on the frontier edge of the future of work, um, to figure out how to make Australia a great place to build and grow a, a technology company. Um, and then we put that through a policy filter and we take that to government and we say, Actually, if we want to be a participant in this new wave of economic activity that's coming with technology rather than just a receiver of it, if we want to be generating that technology and that, those jobs here, um, we need to put the right settings in place to make that possible. So um, our mission is to transform Australia through technology entrepreneurship. Um, I think Australia's probably going to be transformed through technology either way, but we want to make sure that's a positive transformation by making sure that some of those companies are, are born here. Great. Well, so we've, we've heard a lot about interdisciplinarity tonight already. <laughs> I was hoping we might hear a bit more. Um, you know, so in terms of interdisciplinary collaboration, 
how important is that going to be in terms of looking at the looking for you know the jobs of the future, and and what impact is that going to have on our ideas of specialization? Yeah, I, it's totally critical. I mean, I think every speaker has already spoken a little bit about um, elements of interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary study. I mean, my background is that I studied law here at Sydney Uni. Um, I then went and worked for a big corporate law firm. I was a diplomat for Australia in, in Israel f uh, for a few years. Um, and then I came back and now I'm running a, uh, a startup policy organization. So that's three careers in, in 10 years, more or less. Um, the stats are that kids graduating now will have 17 jobs in a career, something like that, a large number anyway, much more than the one or two that were traditionally um, the way forward. And that means that there's going to be uncertainty. And I think dealing with uncertainty, it's exactly right that dealing with uncertainty is going to be a huge part of how um, workers in engaged in the new workforce are going to succeed and thrive. And one of the absolutely key ways of getting those skills is to have an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary approach where all your eggs aren't in one basket. Um, we're creating new industries here and we don't know what they're going to be. Um, uh, one of the really easy things to do is to see where jobs are going to disappear, one of the really hard things to do is to see where they're going to be created. Um, and so it's really important, I think, especially in a time of flux, um, to be taking a multi and interdisciplinary, it's hard to say, interdisciplinary approach um, to study and, and to work. And when I look at the kinds of jobs that startups are, are, are looking for here in Australia, the kinds of people that they can't find anywhere and need to get in on 457 visas, um, they're jobs that aren't listed in the 457 visa skills list because the Department of Immigration doesn't know that those are even jobs yet. Um, they actually are jobs that you can't go and do a degree in um, at any university in the country um, because we're just not there yet. Uh, they're jobs like being a, um, a UX designer or a UI designer or being a product manager. And those are inherently interdisciplinary jobs. Um, they involve uh, Nikki's thing of CS plus X, which is a computer science and other formula, which means you've got to have the computer science bit in order to make the product, but you've also got to have a passion area in order to make a useful product in an area that people will actually want to use. Um, so that's by, defini by definition interdisciplinary. Um, they involve not just STEM, which is interdisciplinary science, technology, engineering, maths, but STEAM, add an A in there, um, because a lot of these things actually are inherently creative as well. If you're a, a designer of a user interface, you actually have to know about design and about visual elements, uh, and that's you know, coming straight out of the, the classic arts faculty. Um, so I think basically the point is even in really specialised jobs, inter interdisciplinary approaches are going to be really important, and in terms of setting ourselves up for success with an economy and a jobs framework that we can't really predict at this stage, um, we're going to have to make sure that we are instilling kids with uh, Discipline, interdisciplinary approaches across the, their study. So, so, so a million dollar question, and I wonder whether this is actually one for all of you, and that is, so can and should universities try and keep up with jobs of the future? Uh, can we? Can actually educational providers keep up with all of the, you know, you're talking about specializations where, you know, immigration haven't sussed out what these jobs are yet. Is, so what, what, what would be your answer to that? You starting with me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of looking across. Like that. I wasn't quite sure. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, I'm a bit cross-eyed. Didn't want to jump in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> uh, absolutely, yes, we do need to do, uh, we need to, do need to uh, future-proof our credit rates. Um, uh, <laughs> because, partly because, I mean, AB have got a res responsibility as an academic and research institution to do that, and also, um, actually, we have a really strong advantage in the University of Sydney to say that to, and that we are a research um, active university. So, um, and I always say that at open days as well, when I talk to incoming students and the parents, that we as academics, you're not just teachers, we're also, also researchers in our fields. So we actually, our, half of our job is actually looking into the future of our fields and trying to work out what is that future, what does that future look like? Um, and um, and, and partly also because um, students enrolling in a bachelor degree next year, for example, they won't get it until after 2020. Mm. So we have to prepare them for a future that is still quite, quite a while away, um, three, four years. It's a lot can happen in that period. Mm. Um, and I totally think it is possible, and I think we're on the right track. And all the conversations coming through here, I think, uh, sh are showing that it is possible. Um, I think we also have a really great advantage in our university in that we have all these different disciplines. And, um, and so, for example, one of the things that I'm personally very excited about with that new um, undergraduate um, ex experience that we are rolling out next year is that we are going to be offering a major in design across um, a, yeah. a range of degrees. So anyone studying, for example, art, science, or business, or um, advanced computing, will be able to, to pick up design and design thinking subjects. Um, and you can only do that sort of education in a university that is quite broad and quite big. Um, and maybe to give a personal example, and I'll finish on that, um, when I, when I um, looked at enrolling in a university in uh, 1997, I studied in Vienna. Um, I, uh, went to, I remember I went to open days at three different universities to look at programs in business, in graphic design, and informatics. And I had to make a decision. There was no program that would give me all the skills ac across the different disciplines. So I had to make a decision for one of those programs and then later pick up the other interdisciplinary or cross-disciplinary skills through electives. And I was even, I managed to do electives in other universities even, uh, which I'm not sure if that's even possible in Sydney or Australia. For so I think we're in a really good place in our university. And yes, absolutely, we have to, we have to make sure we future-proof our graduates. Yes. Alex. <laughs> I, I want to throw something out there that might be controversial, but I... I oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually think it's a little bit unfair for us to say universities have to be the place where people will be able to go to yeah. learn all the skills they need for future jobs. I don't think universities started out as places where people went to get jobs or to learn to get jobs. They started out as places where people went to learn to learn and to think. Um, and actually, I think there's a real spot for unis potentially in in future to come back to that a little bit um, mm. and to be just giving people a real base in critical thinking and really broad skills uh, that they can then use to jump into the workforce and be effective in whichever job they, they decide to chase down. I mean, even very, very professional-oriented degrees are often, you know, you spend, I spent five years studying law and I learned lots about the law, but you start at zero when you go into a law firm, basically, I and mean, then <laughs> you're learning on the job again. So, and, no criticism at all. I think that's how it should be. Um, and I think that maybe universities need to be cut a little bit more slack than to be seen mm. as the places that have to tackle this whole future of work challenge all by themselves. Oh, we can go home. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't, yeah. I think it's still a big, I think that's still a really big challenge for universities in the yeah. way they see themselves and the way they're structured. Yeah, no, I think actually that's a, that really captures it, but I'm now going to throw it over to you two. 
I'll go first. Um, I think I think it's a bit of both. So we do d give students deep knowledge in a field, and let's not forget universities have undergraduate degrees and have postgraduate degrees. So we have we we have we give them different skill sets in 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 those two uh, uh, parts of the education. But um, I think there is a broad range of fundamental skills that we can give our students. Um, and again, I'll give examples from business because that's my backyard. Uh, but for instance, how do you think about um, ethics and technology? And at what level do you think about questions of ethics? Those will translate regardless of what the technology is. Um, one of the big challenges that we have coming up is there is a lot of new inventions and a lot of the things that are happening in AI or in automations are basically inventions. We, we came up with a new technology. We um, came up with a new product. Um, how do we rethink business models around that? How do we take that from the invention to an innovation, to a new way of doing things. Those are skills that will translate over a number of jobs and a number of careers. And we are well equipped to do that and the opportunity for our students um, to complement what they learn, let's say, in the business school with something from arts or from sciences. That's a fantastic opportunity to do that. But then to also expose them to extremely messy problems. So um, there, there is a tendency in, in other programs and in other schools um, to say that, well, the world is a very ordered place and we have an answer and these are the tools, these are the models. Whereas I think in the University of Sydney, we see that we're equip equipping students with, um, yes, a range of skills, which might be relevant for some time or for a long time or for no time, right? The half-life of skills is now getting shorter. I think it's something like three years is the half-life of skills, so that's not a long time. But we give them certain skill sets. We also give them um, tool sets. We teach them design thinking, and design thinking is one of the best ways we can think now about how to solve certain problems. doesn't mean it will be the only way. So we give them those tool sets, but what we also equip students with in the university, and I, I agree with you on that, is mindset. So we teach students how to think about certain problems. And ethics and robots is a good example, right? We can think about ethics and, and automation and AI in that if I have a self-driving uh, self car, does it um, kill the child, does it kill the elderly lady, or does it kill me as the passenger who paid all this money for a brand new Mercedes? Um, and yes, that is a way to think about ethics and robots, but we can take our students back, and we do that um, um, at the University of Sydney and in the business school. We say, well, let's rethink the role of automation and robotics in society. The way I design the car and the decision that I, I exclude the person from that interaction, and that is same if you want to develop a factory and, and uh, automate a factory, we have to design the human out of it. And that is a decision that we make. We can choose to maximize our profits, or we can choose to have enough profits, right? And that is a decision and a skill that we teach, um, that we teach our students and their convers important conversations that we have with them. Thank you, Nikki. Everyone's made such good points. Um, <laughs> but th the original question was, if the Australian government can't figure out what jobs are current, then is it the university's role to... to or, or, uh, or, even, or even can we? Is it possible for us? And I'm going to say no. Um, I, I don't think it's uh, our role to do that. I, th I, I agree that we should be focusing on, on skill sets, tool sets and mindsets on learning how to learn rather than um, necessarily encouraging students to uh, follow a Bachelor of Information Security. Um, we know that there's going to be a lot of turmoil in the job market um, and we know that students are going to need to um, be well placed with skill sets to adapt to, to what changes will come. And I think allowing them to 
uh, or encouraging them to to uh, narrow down a specific field because there are those jobs now um, is missing the point when we need them to be able to to use those skills and adapt those skills and transfer those skills um, into the the careers of the future. Okay, good. So, I th so I, I so I actually think all that fits together quite well, and I'm now going to do a sort of sophisticated exercise in putting them together. But so in other words, what we're really talking about is that universities as being places where we need that broad knowledge base and that idea of being able to think. And that seems to be the one thing that's really coming through tonight is that students need to be able to think for themselves and think clearly for themselves as far as possible. Um, but also. We're obviously, you know, within the university, we're also giving students these toolkits, which actually, in some respects, help them in that sort of that in that sort of way to actually be able to sort of solve and to actually understand problems. One last question, and then we're going to throw it over. To what extent is important that students? We should keep on teaching students to be critical. It's so important. <laughs> it is so important. Um, I've heard a lot of uh, talk about. Um, we were talking about it before, the, the AI, uh, the impending AI being perfect and all-knowing and making decisions for us, that's not going to happen. Uh, humans are biased, machines learn from our biases, and it is so important to, to teach students to, to critically analyse situations, uh, algorithms, outcomes, to gather data to, to support a case and to be well-skilled in arguing their case, arguing their thoughts um, against what the algorithm said, against what uh, they're hearing um, at universities, at schools, mm -hmm. in their places of work. We need them to think critically. That is the, the number one overarching skill that I would support. I would, I would completely agree with what you've said, so I'm not, I'm not going to repeat that. And I will say that one of the big dangers that, um, uh, that are out there, and I think this is both for secondary education and for, for tertiary education, is this assumption that because our students grow up surrounded by this technology, that they are somehow better than uh, you know, us um, at knowing what to do with that technology. So for a long time we had this um, um, assumption of the digital native that grew up in this world surrounded by technology, by you, YouTube, by Facebook, by WeChat, and that they naturally know how to use this. And I think um, there's actually good research that came out two months ago saying that is not true. Um, our favorite word, that's bullshit. But uh, <laughs> what, <laughs> what uh, um, we know is that these students might have the technical competencies to use, and they post on Facebook and on YouTube and, and have the technical competencies to use that. Um, they might have even some um, uh, critical competencies around using this. They might say, well, hang on, my newsfeed might not be exactly the true reality, and I might, be, I might need to look beyond that. But those critical competencies need to be developed within our universities and saying, hang on, on um, people analytics, well, someone thought about how to design those algorithms, thought about what you're measuring, um, and then fed it some real-world data. So there is implicit bias in what you're seeing. But also cultural competencies. How do you use those skills for business, right? It's not the same thing to know how to post things on Facebook or how to use LinkedIn, for instance. How do you leverage your network to solve a problem? And it's one thing to leverage your network to have a fantastic party. Um, but it's another thing to say, this is a business problem, and this is the network that I have and I'm leveraging it to solve that problem and we give them that opportunity in school so technical competencies critical competencies but also cultural competencies around how they, they use them I thank you think that's where I was going with it great <laughs> so maybe we should throw it open now 
over to the audience now. Hi, uh, that was just fantastic, thank you. Um, one thing I just wanted to pick up on was this uh, difference between specialisation and thinking. So um, could you just clarify, because uh, I'm listening and thinking, so what happens to specialisation? Is it so dynamic and so um, fast now uh, in all professions, be it med medicine, architecture, whatever it might be, law, uh, that we don't need to learn that when we go to university, which is what I'm thinking you might be saying in the future, not necessarily in two years' time, but maybe in five years' time, um, that that will be stuff that we gather as an intern or a cadet or we, um, in fact, have um, the ability for algorithms to do a lot of that work for us, to chase the knowledge. In other words, our thinking will allow us to research what we need if we're doing specialisation. And so we're kind of seeing the end of specialists and the rise of great thinkers. Alex. Yeah. Like Alex, actually, person. I was directing sure. that yeah, to yeah, you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I love we're seeing the end of specialists and the rise of great thinkers. That's great. Um, I'm not sure yet if we're quite there. I think specialists definitely... Um, have a role to play and I think the point um, that was made about postgraduate study and the, the continuation of education after a, a, a strong undergraduate base is actually that's the specialization bit um, but I think the point that you made which is that uh, actually a lot of it's going to happen on the job um, through cadetships or apprenticeships I was at a round table the other day and someone was saying x ships because it's um, <laughs> apprenticeships and, and cadetships and mentorships and um, traineeships, so just all the ships. Um, yes, and I think I, th I think it, it draws on a, a broader theme, which um, is that I don't think we should be letting universities off scot free on on this. I mean, it sounds a little bit at the moment like we've come to the point where we're like, oh, actually, unis might not have to do that much. Really, they're sort of giving a broad education, and they can't be, you know, the predictors of the future. I think it is a really big challenge for universities to figure out how to do interdisciplinary. Um, education well and in a way that's uh, relevant to the workforce as it changes. And I think it's a really big challenge to figure out how to link that with uh, the private sector and with places where people are going to go and be employed so that it continually evolves with the needs that are out there in a, in a fast-paced and, and really quickly shifting uh, um, workforce. I want my cardiologist to still be a cardiologist, please. Um, I, I, certainly, I... I I, I like the, the, the concept of a broad general uh, background that students are equipped um, to solve uh, broad, diverse problems, but I think that specialisations are still... We've got a ways to go yet. But a cardiologist yep. learns all of his cardiology or her cardiology skills on the job. They graduate with a medicine degree and then the rest is... And then they specialise. ...on the job training. Yeah, but... Mm, there's still specialisation. Sure. But not, <laughs> After but a broad not necessarily degree. at university. Yeah, exactly. I'd, I'd probably echo that and, and say I'd rather have a dentist than a tuthologist <laughs> um, with an iPad that goes, I, I reckon it's about here. Um, so I, I do think uh, one of the reasons that we are actually thinking, well, you need to stay longer in university than before, it's exactly because of this. I don't think it's one is replacing the other. I think we actually need um, students to spend more time at university, to have time to not only learn, um, and in your undergraduate studies or postgraduate study, learn the um, tools or the skills that are currently required in some of those things. I mean, it's very hard for me to um, teach students what a business is for if they don't then also learn what a business is um, currently and what are current models, so they can challenge them. It's very difficult to challenge those assumptions and those skills if you don't have something to, to begin with. So I think um, more than ever, they'll, they'll, they'll need to be a bit of both. 
Uh, well, one other answer to that is the, uh, the idea of T-shaped people or training, training people according to T-shaped profiles, so they've got a broad knowledge but also specialization, which mm -hmm. I agree with everyone else here is still really important to have. But another answer to that is also that um, we, need to we need to teach students specializations in a way so that they can then apply the same way of thinking um, out in the world when they're in a different job, working with different tools in a different environment with different people. Um, and um, we actually recently, uh, three weeks ago, hosted a student conference in our school where we had alum alumni from our school coming back to talk to current students about the job experiences. And it was really interesting to hear from these um, graduates having been out for a couple of years to talk about what, what, what were the, thing, the skills that they found really useful in the industry. And, and the, the, two, the two top things that came back was um, being able to think critically and, and, and differently. Um, um, and the second was uh, collaboration, and that hasn't actually come up, uh, I think, yet. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so one, one of the panelists at that student conference, um, one of the alumni said, um, actually made a reference how to how um, the, some of the most important skills for his current job he learned when he had to deal with group issues, teamwork issues at university for group assignments. And it's something that students always hate, they always complain about that when they're going through <laughs> it. Um, and it was really interesting to hear that person, the graduate, saying um, after a couple of years of being out in the industry that that's actually one of the most important, that's one of the most important skills they took away from university, being, being able to deal with group issues and teamwork issues because you always run into those in, in the real world and the real world you never work in solitary or rarely. You always have to work with other people and in teams and across mm -hmm. disciplines, which is why it's also important for the university to provide that environment as well, not just to have the real world experiences, but also interdisciplinary team experiences. Maybe, yeah. maybe we can keep specialists and have a rise of great thinkers. <laughs> Fantastic, <laughs> you have a big future. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think one, one thing that I might add there is that, um, I, one, that one aspect that we haven't covered and I would completely subscribe to what you've said and that is feedback that we often get from, from our graduates would be also the opportunity for students to get to know themselves. So I think universities are one of the few places where students can realize what their outlook mm -hmm. is on life and realize what their biases, what their own biases are and their own assumptions that they make about the on the world. And just in terms of feedback, uh, we, we got a letter from one of my students. Um, they were saying, I have an assessment that everybody hates, um, which is called the muddiest point so they have to um, write um, around a thing that they struggle to understand in my unit which is called the future of business so most of it is hard to get um, but they have to say well I've struggled to understand this and this is the process through which I work through to understand it and this is the new understanding that I came to and said I do that daily <laughs> at work um, and it's something that that they will only get to experience in a place like 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 a university also the opportunity to think big scale quite often students to get involved in in say projects that they do with companies or with community um, or, or with um, the public sector um, and they work on a very small problem a very specialized problem a very practical problem that finishes within six weeks or six months or a year at university however many of the challenges that we have around the future of work are not things that will be solved by one company in six weeks or in six months some of them are things that are facing our entire society they're big problems they're big questions um, which you don't have 
always time to think about when you're at work, and especially if you're starting out, if you're a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old. So university still allows us to think about, well, what if robots displace 60% of our jobs, or 40%, or 20%? Do we want people to work four days a week? Do we want them to stay at uni for six years instead of four, because that will relieve some of the pressure we have on the workforce? Um, those sorts of questions, how do we redesign these jobs? What do we think is important? How do we, do we address inequality or diversity or cultural competencies? All of those are things for which the university is well placed mm. to do. So obviously collaborative work, which is something which universities traditionally have slightly struggled with. <laughs> if you look at, I think it's true to say, but that's yeah. something which I know we're very interested in. And the other thing is around sort of, you know, making sure that students um, from very different intellectual disciplines as well as cultural disciplines and uh, culture can actually work together and can actually think in such a way, find a common language. There's a question over here. Hi, um, so potentially for Sandra, but for everyone, um, you've spoken a lot about the role of universities as a leader in kind of predicting what the jobs will be, but also in helping prepare young Australians um, to go into these jobs. Do you see a role, and if so, what role would that be for large Australian businesses to kind of play that leadership role in helping young Australians prepare? So not necessarily their employees or in their core business, but large businesses who have kind of a responsibility to help the community? I'll take it first and then <laughs> open it up to the rest. So yes, absolutely. I think I think universities, A, I, I will just um, make one mention. We're, we're, um, most of us are not in the business of predicting the future. We try to anticipate it. Uh, Mark Twain said prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. Um, we're traditionally rubbish at predicting the future. Um, so we try to anticipate some of the problems that we see might come up. I think for businesses, it's a particularly important role. Um, if we see, if we look at just what we spoke today, so I won't refer to specific Australian companies, but if we look just at what we've discussed today, um, AI, Google, Facebook and so on will have huge responsibilities about how this technology influences um, society. If we look um, at agriculture, that being displaced by automation and robots, mining for instance, uh, but also um, the, the way we, the, the number of people we hire, Google, have, Google is, uh, sorry Google, Apple is worth about 800 billion dollars and employs 115,000 people. Woolworths is, uh, Woolworths, Walmart is worth 200 billion dollars, so a quarter of that, and employs 10 times more people, or uh, you know, 20 times more people. So those companies will have huge responsibilities around what happens. And let's remember something like retail, I think, is um, particularly prone to, to being um, fundamentally altered by automation and artificial intelligence. If we look at um, like the US, there's this huge debate around jobs in mining. Well, mining employs half a million people and last year I think about 3,000 people lost their jobs. Um, if you look at department stores, we have 2 million people and 20,000 people lost their jobs. The, what will happen there will be hugely um, influential in, in society. So yes, I think businesses have, have a role to play. And businesses are changing. So last night at uh, the alumni dinner for um, the business school, we had um, Alan Joyce, the CEO of Qantas, talking. Um, if you look at a company like Qantas, that's worth, I don't know, uh, what's market, yeah, nine, nine billion? thereabouts, about five million of that is probably not assets, is the data they have on 11 um, million 
million um, um, frequent flyers. Now that will be a fundamentally different company. And Qantas has chosen, for instance, to speak up on issues of um, diversity and inclusion and so on. Um, that is taking a stance that is being a leader in what we think businesses are for, are for in today's society. So yes, absolutely, I think so. Anyone to add something? Yeah, I mean, I, I furiously, furiously <laughs> agree. Um, and actually, I was at a, a roundtable um, uh, at the end of last week that was put together by Microsoft with lots of international companies and lots of Australian companies there talking about exactly this and particularly the, r the responsibilities of um, those companies and their Australian um, subsidiaries uh, to make sure that they were active participants in developing a workforce in Australia that was going to meet the demands of, of a future economy. Great. Yeah, just a short answer from, from me. I, uh, I think we're talking about large companies here, and my short answer is that um, I, I wouldn't say that they have to do it, but they really should consider doing it if they want to survive the next industrial revolu revolution. So it's just something very, very important for them to have to on, the, on their agenda. So there's a question just over here. I was thinking of another question. I got distracted by something you just said then, um, Sandra. I think Martin just actually answered it. Was <laughs> you're saying businesses have a responsibility, Teamwork. like Walmart, and to, to take responsibility for this changing workforce. I like the idea of that, but I think it might be a little bit idealistic. Do businesses know that? <laughs> Uh, some businesses know that, um, and I think I, I would echo here that the businesses that want to survive will, will learn that pretty quickly. Um, and I think if we look at um, exam from around the world, we have examples of companies thinking about this. I mean, um, if, we look at if we look at Scandinavian countries, for instance, a lot of the people who are working um, in the docks or um, at the airports or other places that have been displaced by technology, those organizations thought about what these people will be doing, and that wasn't going to be their organizations. Um, let's say if you, um, God, I don't want to pick specific examples. If you're a, uh, hopefully someone in the audience, large insurance company, if you're going to um, <laughs> displace some of these workers, if you're going to lay off thousands of people, you will rethink about where those, p what will happen to those people. How do you retrain them? How do you think about their place in society? And we have companies that we know are working on these issues as we speak around how do you retrain those people not to work in the same industry. These are not jobs that are coming back or, um, you know, people are saying, well, if you, um, if you automate the factory, you just train those people to work with machines. Well, yes, but, uh, you know, the, the new um, uh, clean energy plant employs the one that w went online. Um, I think two weeks ago, employs 35 people, whereas the coal plant that it was displacing was employing 550 people. So those people are not going to be working there. But that's why I'm saying it's a societal level issues and companies have a responsibility. I have to agree, though. Um, <laughs> companies have a responsibility. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to do it. And, and so to a large extent, it's, it's up to us um, to employ that critical thinking, to employ that uh, gathering evidence and creating an argument and holding them accountable um, and developing other strategies um, to, to show leadership in this in this sense to, to ensure that, yeah. that it happens yeah. and, and that 
and we are seeing more and more companies do it, right? With, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, we had decisions by the French government, the um, government in the UK, Sweden and Denmark, to phase out, um, um, to, to have only electric vehicles by 2040 and 2050, I think. And one of the Scandinavian countries has gone to 2030 or something a bit more. Uh, but then the week before this announcement, you had Volvo and Volvo came out and said by 2018, we will no longer produce gas, gas fuel cars, we will only have hybrids or electric vehicles. Now that is a company that rethought its role in this new economy and said, this is what I will be doing. So we have good <laughs> examples. I'm an optimist. <laughs> as, we've got, as we've got a few questions now, I'm going to the man in the gingham shirt there, check shirt. Uh, hi. <laughs> hi, everyone. Um, my question is towards um, Nikki, and it touches on some of the sentiments uh, that Alex has expressed and, and you know, started. Um, Nikki, you, you're working on a um, really cool project that I'm passionate about, basically STEM education, and that's really important for the country and humanity, obviously, you know, until, um, on a humorous note, until we reach, you know, singularity or super intelligence, obviously innovation is gonna come from the future generations. So, um, uh, I could probably Google the digital curriculum, but now that I'm here, I, I would like to ask <laughs> questions about it. So I do apologize. I think one question about the digital. Uh, okay, one, one question. Um, could you shed some light on it specifically? Um, like, how do you overcome that issue of we have a gap in the education sector? How do we overcome that? Is, does it involve, you know, the industry giving back or, or volunteers having conference calls? Are we going to introduce concepts that the industry uses, like, um, you know, um, collaboration in communities? Um, um, Oh, well, there were a few other concepts that I wanted to bring it, up. It involves all of that and more. Okay. Um, so uh, there are heaps of initi initiatives. Um, check out CSIRO, CSIRO scientists in schools, information technologists in schools. What we essentially need um, is a scalable solution to equipping both uh, teachers, uh, technology teachers with the skills they need um, and the students themselves immediately uh, with the skills they need. Uh, so this is actually a, a problem that I've been solving for a while now. Um, in uh, Five years ago I, I founded a, an, an ed tech startup um, to teach computer science skills to students and teachers uh, in, a, in a scalable solution. It's not a, a simple problem to solve and, and we essentially need um, community, businesses, everyone to pitch in um, to, to support the initiatives uh, and to support the teachers. They're doing a really hard job. I just wanted to start with a quote uh, by Eric Schmidt, um, that the future just doesn't happen. It's not etched or written or coded anywhere. There's no algorithm or formula that says technology will do X, uh, so Y is sure to happen. Technology doesn't work on its own. Okay, we've got labor and capital as well, but technology, it's just a tool. And we are the ones who harness its power, and that requires innovation and entrepreneurship. So now to my question. One issue with the traditional education system is that the stakes are simply too low. What are your thoughts on this, and how do we solve this problem? Hmm. Do you want to slightly... Yeah, I can elaborate. Yeah, yeah absolutely. A bit. I think you should. So <laughs> one of the, I mean, major things at the moment, we've got the HEX system. 
So this is fantastic because this provides everyone with a university education, um, provided that they apply and get into university. But one of the major issues is that the stakes are simply too low because there's a guaranteed influx of students that have been going up year on year. The, obviously, the fees have been going up year on year. But one would argue that the quality of the graduates is going down year on year. So what I'm saying is that by the university taking the risk and accepting responsibility by offering free education and simply taking a small percentage, 4.2% in perpetuity um, of someone's income, which is nothing in the scheme of things. Because if you provided value to their education, then they keep 95%. So that's, that's what I'm sort of trying okay. to... I, I think the first thing I would say, but I shouldn't, you know, and I'm going to use, I would say that I would strongly dispute that um, the quality of graduates has gone down. I would strongly dispute that. As somebody's taught for 25 years. But anyway, I, uh, <laughs> I agree with that. Um, I totally agree with that. I mean, I see it firsthand um, through teaching in a classroom. I, I can witness the quality of our students coming through and going out and. Um, we are continuously, um, I can only talk about programs in our school, but we're continuously improving the programs in our school. And it's also the feedback we're getting from industry, you're coming back for graduates. It's the feedback I'm getting from graduates who have been out for a while, and um, they're coming back and look at our program and our graduates, and they go like, wow, this is getting better and better. So I don't know who is saying that the quality of graduates is declining. Uh, was the, the question was more around how how can we um, align the goals of the university with the goals of the student? Yes, exactly. Uh, that's a good question. Um, that's a tricky question as well. And, and I think I, I would caution that they are relatively aligned to begin with. Um, and and the, the concept of uh, paying investment for the rest of my life is, is terrifying. Um, Maybe uh, there are better ways of um, ensuring that, that the universities uh, see the same goals as the students' goals. And I, and I think actually having discussions like this about what the future will entail and how we can better equip students for it um, and thus continue to make good students who become good lecturers, who become uh, good donors, um, that, that might be an avenue. The 5% the, the of future earnings in perpetuity sounds like an episode of Black Mirror. Sort of, <laughs> I'll sell you 5% of my equity in me <laughs> for, for my education. Yeah. <laughs> Could happen. Okay. okay. Uh, thank you. Fabulous discussion. Sandra, this question is mostly for you, although all chirp in. So I speak to a lot of organisations around how they're transforming their businesses. And uh, I've come, it's come to my attention that many... Uh, don't anticipate the changes that we're going to see due to technology fast enough. So speaking about a low benchmark, I think they're expecting that change is going to take longer than we imagine that it might. Um, so my question is really about this. When we speak about developing adaptive organisations where complex thinking and dealing with ambiguity is front of mind, and let's put that in the bucket of creating autonomous thinkers. Uh, tell me this, how do we see um, us dealing with the inertia of getting organisations up the curve that they need to adapt? 
And what is going to be the tipping point that will force us, if you like, into a way of thinking that automation is with us? I, sp I speak to some organisations who tell me that they're ready to automate, but they're lacking, and I quote, the courage to do that because of the social upheaval that it will call in the cause in their organisation. So my question is really, as we move into transformation and we're equipping people with these skills, how do we overcome the inertia of organisations to face up to what business will look like moving forward and where is the tipping point? So I'll fess up like I do in class that I don't have the full answer to your question. I will go home and think about it. Um, but <laughs> um, I think I, I want to unpack a few things there because I think there are a few aspects that we, we don't have a good answer. If we had, I think some of us would be consultants and doing a enormous amount of money and we would be training students to know how to fix this uh, in organizations. But a few things we, we do know. First is that I think if we look overall at Australia, we are quite privileged in that I think we have maybe five to seven, we're about five to seven years behind the big wave of automation. So we will see probably I think parts of Europe and parts of the US go through this first. And that will be an example. I think we're we're quite sheltered here, uh, both in terms of uh, um, um, how our organisations are, um, um, how how our companies are organised, but also how our society is structured and so on. So it will take a bit longer than in other places, I think, to come here. But when it will come, it will come very suddenly. Second, I think it's a cultural issue that all organisations struggle with, including universities. And we do soul searching exercises like the one we've had at the University of Sydney, where we said, "Hang on, we need to rethink how we do this," and and we have done so. So I think organisations will will have that. I think public debate around it is very important. I think one of the major reasons. Um, so part of of uh, my my own research agenda way back in the past was around how large groups in society understand ideas. So I was looking at MOOCs, at massive open online courses, and whether that's the future or not of higher education. And it comes down to how society understands certain ideas. I don't think we yet actually understand broadly as a society what these changes will be. So we don't feel the, the impetus, we don't feel the, the need to change that now. I think public debate around it is very important forums such as this one and the University of Sydney has Sydney ideas quite often around these important issues. Sydney Business Insights talks about these things all the time. And the third one is trying to imagine these radically different futures. Um, there is a tendency, and I think in things other than climate change, with technology especially, to think that these changes will be incremental, slow, and we will have time to adapt. Um, but what if we don't? So how are these things going to hit us, right? Doing exercises where we look three, five years into the future. And I think, you know, the iconic example that I gave with five years and the timescale was five years. It happened in two, in one and a half, basically, that Google came up with the, the business model, right? Um, I think those kinds of exercises are very important. And once you put that in front of employees and see, well, this is what the future looks like. Um, but those would be all parts of the answer that I would, that I would give you. Um, Anyone well else want to pitch in? No, <laughs> no uh, industrial revolution happened overnight, and so it will it will happen, but slowly and then suddenly, possibly. Yeah. So I think the answer, my answer to those companies, would be that it's important to be ready um, for when it is happen. And um, I mean, it sounds a bit bizarre that they're ready to push a button and essentially automate everything and sack half the employees. Is that that's I'm understanding that correctly? So there's also an ethical issue well, to that I as well. Yeah. And they were prepared to do that. This is CEO, Shane Elliott, that said that. 
testified on the public stage about uh, talking about the readiness and the preparedness yeah. the information it, being there. I think I, th I, I, I think it is really mm. important for them to be ready, and I think it also links back to the other discussions we had around the responsibilities of large co uh, organizations and corporations to not just think about the future of their businesses, but also the, the future of their workforce and their employees um, as well. Alex? Mm. Oh, I mean, I, I think a point that we haven't touched on that much tonight is that it was what I do every day, which is advocating for entrepreneurship, and mm. I think that's a big part of the answer to a lot of the displacement stuff that we've just finished on there, um, is that we really better make sure that some of the companies that are growing fast and employing lots of people are doing so here in Australia, not just elsewhere and importing technology that's disruptive into Australia. So um, that's a big part of the message that I'm taking to the government every day and saying, this has got to be part of our, of our future prosperity picture. Fantastic. A comment. I don't really think it's a question, but uh, you might want to comment on it. Uh, just the whole point of adaption, the fact of adaption and support for our students. I'm a teacher at Deakin University in social work. Support for our students and also future workforce in terms of uh, developing ways of uh, emotional, emotional intelligence and self-care through these times of, well, so uncertain futures in the workforce. Well, somebody said 19 to 17 or 19 different jobs, which calls for a flexible kind of uh, approach to living, an approach to oneself that I see huge implications right now with, with our students in, in terms of unable to, to, to sort of self-care, unable to sort of uh, deal with a lot of the different changes that are happening. And also staff, myself included, uh, who are going through a lot of changes in the workplace right now because of uh, certainly uh, online kind of systems and not so much in the classroom anymore, uh, those kind of issues. How do, how do we deal with that aspect of the uncertain futures? I sit a com at a computer all day. Uh, I remember years ago when I used to you know, spend a lot of my, more of my time in the classroom, more of my time at the desk doing other things with converse with other uh, colleagues in the university, but now I spend most of my time at the computer working with systems, uh, still collaborating, still, uh, you know, uh, conversing, but yet th there's, there's got to be a way we can deal with that uh, emotional intelligence we're going to need, that kind of self-care. Does, does anyone want to, one person want to respond to that? Because then we've got time for one more question, which is there, I'm afraid. I can give a really short answer, which is that, that uh, one of the other things that, that we uh, want to be trying to focus on, on is teaching resilience um, as well as skills. Uh, and, and that is something that's critical. Um, you know, I kind of think of it as the opposite of spoon feeding. Um, and and I, it's my secret plan. Turns out teaching computer science and coding is really hard and learning it is really hard. And any student who successfully comes through understanding anything about computer science will be taught resilience. There's nothing like <laughs> debugging to really make you resilient. Um, so I think some of that will happen, but certainly having a more open conversation with that, about that at schools all the way up through university is important. 
Yeah, so at the business school, we, we need to, you know, teach the students the F word, which is failure. Mm. <laughs> um, that is, if you look at entrepreneurship, innovation, 95% of startups will fail. So it would be irresponsible of us not to teach resilience, not to teach how do you learn from failure, how do you understand it, how do you come back, how do you do it better the second time around. So yes, we not only need to do that, we have a responsibility to do that. So resilience, very, very resilience. important. Great. Next. Okay, thank you for the... Uh, interesting uh, event today. Uh, I'd like to ask a question about uh, um, the business that uh, now will suffer, if that's if that's correct word, you know, in the future. Because the reason for that is, I think about it this way: uh, when you compare, for example, Amazon, which is landing very soon in Australia, to another company like other retailers like JB Hi-Fi or another one, uh, when you compare the business model, uh, these people like JB Hi-Fi, for example, and all these retailers they base on sales, marketing, and stuff like that. When you compare Amazon, it's based on algorithm and mathematicians. Now, it's very hard to say, but it's I think it's true, that it's very hard to compete with mathematicians and, and uh, algorithm. Okay, so what is the... Um, what is the strategy, actually, for businesses in Australia to be ready for that point? Thank you. Should we start yeah. with Alex? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to pass over to here. <laughs> um, start earlier, I think, mm. is, a, is one strategy that Australian retail probably should have adopted a while ago. Um, <laughs> uh, had, I mean, Amazon's not the newest company going around, um, and they've been pretty lucky it hasn't been here for a long time. Um, I think being aware of what's coming and being adaptive and, and understanding that your business can't just sit still is a really big part of it, um, that mindset, which lots of business leaders are going to have to learn the hard way and the smart ones have already learned. Um, and we'll see, we will see big disruptions in terms of which businesses are successful based on those leadership principles. I, I think we might see large businesses learning what the word pivot means. <laughs> um, that will be interesting. Some of it, I think, some of them will pivot down. Um, <laughs> uh, I think, yes, Amazon is coming to Australia and, you know, great news for consumers, not so great news for some of the retailers. Um, in some areas, there it, it might be a welcome competition, right? We will actually see innovation come out of it. And whenever this sort of thing happens, actually it spurs on innovation because um, Aussie businesses are not just going to lay down and take it. <laughs> they, they will actually fight, fight back. But if you think of how long it takes to buy a book from an um, from an online retailer in Australia, try to go to Dimux online and they will deliver within two to six weeks. Um, if I buy it on Amazon, two same days, day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> same day delivery, yeah. but if I buy it now from Amazon US or UK, it will be here within, within two days. So maybe we need some of that competition. That would be one of the arguments that I would make. Um, second is, you know, everybody talks about Amazon coming to Australia. They, they still need to do quite a bit to come. They will need to build warehouses and to build all these things. So it, it will take a, a while. So we have some time to figure out what we're doing. Also, um, they still need to build a lot to come here. So it's not just mathematicians and, and so on. Um, someone like Alibaba, on the other hand, just put in two more server racks <laughs> and, and they're in Australia. So um, I think there, yeah, Amazon is just one of the ones that are coming. Alex? Sorry, not oh, Alex. Sorry, Martin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I agree with what Sandra said before about Australia actually being in a real really good position, and I see that in my own field too, in, in that we, we, we may be slightly behind some of the other waves um, 
globally, but it puts us in an advantage um, in that we can learn from the failure from overseas um, um, initiatives. Like I, a lot of my work is in the smart cities area, so for example, looking at how, how we can design digital experiences in cities and Im improve the, the um, efficiency and effectiveness and livability of cities. And smart cities came late to Australia, but it came in the right way because we were able to learn from the failures from overseas companies and countries and governments. So I just wanted to echo that. Great. Well, look, it's the end of the, the, the end of our formal session, but I'd like to just really thank our panel, but which is for what's been a really, really fantastic discussion tonight. So if we can thank Alex, Sandra, Nikki, and Martin. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.